Well, this morning we're blessed to have a, a guest speaker with us. This is um, Rob Salvato. He's the pastor of Calvary Chapel in Vista, California, and uh, he's a good friend of mine, a good friend of Rosemary's as well. Um, you may not know this, but Rosemary's from Vista. So, uh, yeah, you know, Rob and his wife Denise have just been, over the last years, good friends and, and support to us, and so it's really great to have you here, Rob. Come on. Good morning. It's great to be here with you, and uh, we had an awesome time with the couples that were uh, at the couples retreat, and um, it's just a real privilege to be able to share with you this morning. And uh, we do love uh, Nick and Rosemary, and um, you know we were uh, as a church supporters of theirs when they were in um, Hungary, and they did just an amazing job there. And um, in some ways, you know, we were a little um, disappointed to see them come home because they did such a great job, but at the same time, just so excited to have them here in the States and a chance to get to see them more and um, just see the work that God's doing here. You know, Rosemary um, kind of grew up in our church and just has such a heart for people, and we just love that about her, her heart for people, her heart for Jesus, and and, and Nick as well, um, just such a heart for the Lord, and, and just as a young guy, um, I just love his vision, and he's innovative, and and um, so if you are visiting here today, I really want to encourage you to, you know, come back next week, because Nick is a great Bible teacher, and um, you'll really, really be blessed. But this morning, I'd like you to turn your Bibles to Psalm 107. Psalm 107, and let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your love that never fails. We thank you so much for the grace that you just continually pour out upon our lives. And Lord, I thank you for the privilege of being able to be here with this group of people today. And I pray that you would um, just bless your word to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, having the right perspective concerning a situation can really, really mean a lot concerning the way maybe you handle that situation. And years ago, I had the opportunity to go and do some ministry over in Africa. And um, it was really, really a privilege to go and minister to pastors there. But on, on the last two days of our of our trip there, um, the people who were hosting us took us to this game park. And uh, what a game park is there is it's it's this place where you get to see the, the wildlife, the, the animals there, roam in the wild. And um, really, there's nothing separating you from lions and cheetahs and giraffes and elephants they're just they're just out there and you're you know kind of on this little piece of property and they're the only thing that really separates you from from the the place where they roam is is a log you know just a log that sits on the ground and it's like like do they know not to cross the log you know type of a thing 
And so we're there and we're looking out and we're seeing everything. We're seeing the big five and it's just, you know, incredible. And they're just kind of roaming. And that night we're sitting around the fire and the guys who are hosting us, they, they start telling us a story. They said, you know, not, not long ago there was, um, two guys, you know, like yourselves that were visiting here and they were here at the game park. And, and in the middle of the night, because here's the thing, where you sleep are just these little huts and they have a door. And they have windows, but there's no glass in the windows. There's just openings. And so you kind of come in, and then you climb up these stairs, and they, they have your beds up there, and they have the netting, you know, so the mosquitoes don't get to you. And and um, so that they, they're telling us a story that the, these guys were sleeping in their hut in the middle of the night. A lion jumped through the window and went up the stairs and grabbed one of the guys by the head and drug him out, and they never saw him again, you know? I'm like, really? <laughs> you got to be kidding. And I'm thinking, that can't be true. They're pulling our leg. And so that night, me and the guy that was with me, we're, we're in bed and we have the little net pulled down around us and we're sleeping. And all of a sudden we hear outside of our little hut, this roar. I mean, it's, it's loud. It's frightening. We wake up. My friend's like, go look and see what it is. And I'm like, you go look and see what it is, you know? And I go out to the window expecting to see, you know, the Lion King. And what's out there is the largest elephant I have ever seen in my life. Right outside of our window. And he is roaring, you know, just roaring. And I'm like, oh, praise God, it's not a lion, you know, type of a thing. Well, this morning, I want to share something with you that hopefully will help in in just helping you have the right perspective concerning maybe the roar going on in your world, you know, and the roar that sometimes is happening in our hearts. And so here in Psalm 107, verse 8 and 9, we read this, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. Now here the psalmist declares to us that, that it is the Lord, that he's the one who satisfies the longing soul. But here's what I find that is so interesting. As I look around me, and I'm sure as you look around you, I see a lot of discontent people all around us. A lot of people who are not satisfied really at all. Even in the church, even amongst believers, that all around us are, are people whose hearts are filled with longings. And there are, uh, there's a longing in our hearts oftentimes for, for something more or, or something better or something else. I mean, have you ever found yourself saying something like this? You you come home maybe from a vacation and, and someone asks you, hey, how was it? And you say, oh, it was great except for. Or maybe you're talking about your job. My job would be better if. Or my marriage would be better if. Or, you know, my church would be better if. Or, you know, hey, my kids, they're great buts. And there's always that sense in our hearts that there's something else, and there's got to be something better. Now, I want to just say right away that the point of the message is not to point out how, you know, we can be ungrateful people. That, that's not my point at all. 
but rather to point out that the discontentment that we deal with in our hearts is somewhat normal. Because as believers, there is a built-in longing for three distinct things that, that are, are, have been really put in there by God. This built-in longing is there because God's Spirit has been placed in our hearts. And it's the presence of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the believer that is creating this longing in our hearts for these three distinct things. And this is what they are. Number one, intimacy with God. Number two, heaven. And number three, an eternal perspective. These are three things that are built in. They're, they're, they've been built into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Now, if we understand what it is that we are really longing for and how it is satisfied, it will help us to better understand and navigate through the feelings of discontentment that we feel in this life. It'll help us navigate through the roar that we sometimes feel inside of, why do I feel so discontent? And so, so this is what, that's what I want to break down for you this morning. But before we go there, I want to start by looking at three common enemies of contentment that we all can struggle with. So enemy number one, if you're taking notes, is unnoticed blessings. Unnoticed blessings. You see, it's easy for us to take for granted what we have. Let me give you an illustration. I have three kids. My wife and I have three kids. And our middle daughter, her name is Amy. And Amy has this gorgeous, just beautiful curly hair. Now, she always, today, because she's 22 years old, she's always flat ironing it. But when she was little, I mean, it was just this crazy, you know, curly hair. And everywhere that we went, people would comment about her hair. We would be in restaurants, and people would be looking across the restaurant, and they'd be pointing at our table. And we knew what they were saying. Look at that little girl's hair. Sometimes they would walk up to our table, and they would say, we just have to ask you, is that real, or is that a perm, you know? And she's like five, and we're like, we're really going to spend the money to have, you know, a five-year-old's hair permed. And, and so Amy is growing up, you know, just always getting these compliments about her hair. And what happens is she starts to get a little, just kind of so used to it that she takes it for granted. So one day, her and I, we're in the grocery store, and uh, she's sitting in the cart, and this guy's ringing up our groceries, and he looks at her like everybody does. And he goes, oh, little girl. He goes, you have the most beautiful hair. And she just sits there like, I've heard this before. She's like six years old at this time, you know. I've heard this so many times. It doesn't say a word. And I say to her, I say, Amy, what do you say to the man? And she looks at him with a straight face and she says, thank you. You have nice hair too. The guy was completely bald. <laughs> Didn't have a hair on his head at all, you know. And that's what oftentimes can happen to us is we can begin to take for granted the blessings that we have, that we can, can get so kind of caught up in the routine of our walks with the Lord that we find that our devotion time is, you know, we're just kind of going through the motion or we come into a setting like this and during worship it just kind of lacks a passion because we've completely lost sight of how blessed we are. It's easy for us to take for granted those blessings. Listen, we have so many reasons to be blessed, starting with our salvation. Think about this, folks, this morning. 
Newsflash maybe for some of you. Maybe you, you haven't thought about this in a long, long time, but you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, you are not going to hell, okay? That's a pretty awesome thing. Turn to the person next to you and say, I'm not going to hell. Do that real quick, okay? Just... <laughs> That's such an incredible thing. And we're so blessed physically by what we have, you know, in this country. And it's easy to take those things for granted. You know, we live in San Diego and we, you know, have the blessing of being by the beach. And we used to live in Oregon, which was a little bit more like this. But it's so interesting. We fly into a place like this. And yesterday, you know, Nick takes us to Estes Park and we're driving around and we're seeing the mountains. And, you know, we're walking out on the, the lake and it, it almost broke through. No, it didn't. But we're, we're walking out there and we're just seeing this gorgeous, you know, landscape and just gorgeous creation. And it's like, wow. But I know for us living by the coast where we have these beautiful sunsets and all these ways, it's like, oh yeah, the coast, you know, and it's easy to take it for granted. I'm sure that you sometimes, you know, maybe go through that living here. It's easy to take it for granted. The beauty, the majesty of God's creation. And it's so easy for us in life to get focused on what is wrong instead of what is right. I want you to think for a minute about John the Baptist. John the Baptist finds himself in what I call his dungeon of doubt. It's after he gets arrested. And remember that story where a couple of his disciples come to him and he says, hey, I want you to go find Jesus and I want you to ask him if he's the one or should we look for another? Now think about that statement, okay? This is John who stood in the Jordan River as Jesus walks in and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He says to Jesus, I should not be baptizing you, you should be baptizing me. He said, there's one coming after me that I'm not even worthy to loose his sandal strap. It was John who said, he must increase and I must decrease. And now John is in a prison cell and he's saying, go ask Jesus, is he the, the, the one or should we look for another? What happened? What happened? John was so convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, but now he's in jail and he's thinking, if he's the Messiah, why am I here? Why am I in this place? And maybe you find yourself in a dungeon of doubt of sorts and you're wondering and you're thinking, you know, God, if you're really God, if you really love me, if that song that we sang is really true, then why am I in this place? And I love what Jesus tells those, those disciples of John. They come, they ask him that question and he says, you go back and you tell John the things that you have seen and the things that you have heard. The dead are raised, that the lame walk, that the blind see. In other words, here's what Jesus was saying to John, and I think this is a word for somebody here this morning. John, don't look at what I'm not doing, but look at what I am doing. Don't focus on what to you seems wrong, but focus on what is right. Don't focus on what is not happening, but focus on what is happening. So enemy number one is unnoticed blessings. Enemy number two is unfair comparisons. Now, my wife and I, we've been married 26 years. And when we first met and we were going on our honeymoon, now we were, you know, dirt poor. We were, I was a youth pastor. I was making $700 a month and, and our rent was $450. And, and so we're going on our honeymoon and she knows things are tight. And she asked me, she says, do you care? You know, is it okay if we go out to dinner like someplace nice, like one time? I'm like, sure. 
And then I asked her, what are you thinking by nice? And this is what she said. She goes, you know, like the sizzler or something. Now, do you guys know what the sizzler is? you have sizzler? I mean, like, just, you know. I'm like, really? Okay, yeah, honey, we'll go out somewhere nice every night, you know, is what I'm thinking. Well, that was on our honeymoon 26 years ago. And then a couple of years ago, somebody gave us um, a gift card for Christmas to Roos Chris. Do you have Roos Chris here? You know, you ever been there? It's incredible. It'll cost you a hundred bucks, but the steak, it, they, they cook it in butter and it just it melts in your mouth, you know? It's amazing. Well, for me personally, my wife could still do scissor, but for me, it's like it just doesn't cut it anymore, you know? It's, but it's an unfair comparison. You can't compare, you know, the sizzler steaks with the Ruth Chris steaks. But how many of us, how many guys are discontent because of unfair comparisons? They judge their wife by the supermarket model on the cover of the magazine at the supermarket there. And that's an unfair comparison. For first of all, that, that picture that you see, it's airbrushed. It's not even real, you know. She doesn't even really look like that. And, and, and plus, that model that's on that page doesn't have a real life. You know, she lives to look good. You know, she has a personal chef. She has a personal trainer. And it's an unfair comparison. How many ladies do this? Or they look at their life and maybe they look at their, their husband and, and, you know, they're, they're discontent with their living situation and they judge their husband's pay by maybe one of their girlfriends and, you know, what her husband does. And the problem is, is that her husband's a doctor and, and, you know, uh, her, her, her friend's husband is a doctor and her husband is, you know, a teacher or he, you know, works in a different line of work where much, you know, less of a pay scale. And so she finds herself in that place looking and thinking, you know, man, I wish my situation was like that one. Listen, in Numbers chapter 34, Moses is assigning the areas to the children of Israel. They're creating their borders, and, and he tells them, he says, okay, Judah, this is your territory, and, and you know, or the tribe of Dan, this is your territory, and each one of the tribes, you know, uh, Reuben, this is your territory, and he tells them, he says, now, if you cross over your borders, this is what's going to happen. You're going to be stretched beyond measure. And that's such a good thing for us to realize and understand is that, that all of us, God has given an allotment. He's given us an area. He's given us a life. He's given us a section. He said, this is what your life is going to be like. This is what I've designed for you. This is the job or this is the neighborhood where I have planted you and I want you to bloom where you are planted. And being content in that unless God is the one that changes that. So, second enemy of contentment is unfair comparisons. And then finally, number three, an unrealistic ideal. An unrealistic ideal. Oftentimes in the Christian world, we are led to believe that God's blessing, when God is blessing, that means that there's not going to be any problems in your life. That your health is going to be good, that your family is going to be good, that you are going to have wealth. And, and, and so, you know, you, you find somebody and that's what's going on in their life. Hey, how's it going? Oh, I'm so blessed. And what they mean is, I don't have any problems right now. Everything is good. But is that really the definition of God's blessing? A life free of difficulty? You know, there's a lot of myths that people think are in the Bible. This is one of them. You know, that saying, God helps those who help themselves. You know, that's not in the Bible. You know, a lot of people think it is. 
You know, they want to quote it. Not in John or somewhere, you know. That, that's not in the Bible. In fact, the Bible really teaches that God helps those who can help themselves. That's really the message of the Bible. But here's another myth. This saying, God will not give me more than I can handle. How many of you ever heard that before? God will not give me more than I can handle. That's a myth. That's a myth. I mean, you read the Bible and what you find is God is always giving us more than we can handle. That's often how God moves us from being self-dependent to God-dependent. I mean, can anyone say the Red Sea, you know? Moses finds himself, Pharaoh's barreling down on him, the Red Sea's at his back, and I mean, that was more than he could handle. God had to show up, and that's what he did. Can anyone, you know, say uh, Joshua and Jericho, that was more than they could handle, or Goliath, David and Goliath, or Gideon and his 300 men against an army of 185,000. That was more than they could handle. And so many of God's most blessed saints went through incredible times of suffering. David spends 15 years as a fugitive being chased around the countryside by King Saul before he becomes king. Joseph gets sold into slavery and spends 13 years in slavery and in prison. And sometimes we read the story, which takes us a couple minutes to read in the book of, of uh, Genesis, and we forget that it was 13 years. You take Paul the Apostle and what he writes about his own life in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and you read that and you think, I, I haven't gone through anything. So many of God's most, you know, great saints were put in situations that was where God gave them more than they could handle. And every single one of those men was put in that situation. And it was in that situation that they learned to depend upon God and the sufficiency of his grace. So those are three common enemies of contentment. Unnoticed blessings unfair comparisons, and unrealistic, an unrealistic ideal. Now I want to talk about, I want to shift gears and talk about that discontentment that we all can feel. And sometimes it's related to those three things and we're wrestling and our heart just feels uneasy and we're like, what is going on and what is happening? Listen, there's, there's three things that God has placed in your heart that you are longing for, and you've maybe never thought about this, and I hope this brings perspective to you today, but three things that we see God has laid out because he's placed his spirit in our hearts. Number one, if you're taking notes, we are longing for intimacy with God. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. Turn there, please. I'm going to have you turn a little bit this morning. We're going to be in the New Testament here. Galatians chapter 4. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul is building a case for how we have been brought out of being slaves to sin to become children of God. And I want you to notice what he says in verse 6. He says, and because you are sons, and we could say daughters, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. This is what happens when we get saved. The miracle of salvation involves two things. One is that you are placed in Christ so that when God looks at you, he now sees you in his son. He sees you in the righteousness of Christ. But the other miracle of salvation is God places the spirit of his son in you. 
The Spirit of His Son comes to dwell. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell in our hearts. And I want you to think about that. Of all the places in the universe where the Spirit of God could dwell, He chooses to dwell in the heart of the believer. And what is He doing there? Check it out. He's crying out constantly, Abba, Father. Abba. God's Spirit in your heart is crying out. There's a longing. Abba. Now that word Abba, most of you know, it means daddy. It's a term, it's a word that speaks of intimacy. In fact, it was the most intimate expression that a child would use in, in referring to their father. It was a, a term that they would only use in the privacy of their home. When they were out in public, it was always more formal. It was sir or it was father. But at home, when that little girl can climb up on daddy's lap and throw her arms around her, it was Abba. It was daddy. I love you so much. And Paul is saying here, check this out. God's spirit is in you. And what he's doing in your heart is he's constantly crying out, Daddy. In other words, he's longing for intimacy and closeness with God. Closeness with Father. And this is the first thing that I need to realize when I start to feel discontent in this life. When I start to sense this longing in my soul that what I'm longing for is not a new car. It's not a bigger house or it's not a better paying job. Those are not going to be the things that are going to satisfy the longing that's in my soul. But what I'm really longing for is more of Jesus. I'm longing for a greater intimacy with him. And he is desiring that with me as well. Remember in Mark chapter 3 and verse 14 where it tells us that Jesus chose his 12 disciples. And I love what it says here. It says that he called them to himself. He called them to himself. It doesn't say that he called them to go preach. He doesn't, you know, it doesn't say that he called them to some mission. That's not where, where it was at when it, when he first started. It says he called them to himself. And more than what you can do for God, the thing that he wants you to understand is that he just wants you to be with him. The Apostle Paul understood this. That's why in Philippians chapter 3, Paul's kind of given a testimony. He's talking about his life as a Pharisee, and he's talking about, you know, he says this, I've laid aside all things, all things, counted it as garbage, counted it as rubbish, for, for this one purpose, this, this one pursuit, that I might know Jesus that I might know Christ. Now, here's what I want you to think about. Paul, when he wrote this, he had been walking with God for 30 years. For 30 years, most of his ministry, most of the churches that he had planted, had you know, he had done that already. This is 30 years into it, and he's saying, I laid aside all things, I continue to lay aside all things for this one thing. This is what I'm pressing into, this is what I'm pursuing after, that I might know Christ. And I think we would ask him, you know, we would be prone to say, but Paul, you've been walking with God for 30 years, you've written most of the New Testament. Don't you know him by now? And I think Paul, if he could answer, he would say this. He would say, yes, but there's so much more of Jesus to know. There's so much more of him to know. And I think God wants us to understand that. There's so much more 
of his love, love to grasp, of his grace to understand. The Lord gave me a visual picture of this one day. I was down at the beach one morning, I was having devotions, and I saw something that, that I, in all the time I've lived in California, I had never seen this before, but there was a flock of pelicans, you know, those birds with the big long beak, and they were, you know, just hovering over this body of water. And then all of a sudden, you know, one of them would just dive bomb, you know, just straight down, just into the water, they would be fully submerged, and they'd come up with this fish in their beak. And what had happened was they had discovered a school of fish and, and just one after the other, just, you know, just going, just reckless abandonment, just you know, into the water, up with their fish. And I was just mesmerized. I sat there for like 45 minutes. And I'm just looking at this like, really? Yeah. And then God spoke to my heart. He said, Rob, that's how I want you to pursue me. With that same type of reckless abandonment. And I was just mulling over that day this passage, and, and, it, and it hit me. That was Paul. Paul just pursued knowing Jesus with a reckless abandonment. And I think God wants us to look at his son in this way and the knowledge of his son in this way that it's like a treasure chest that we get to just dive into for the rest of our life and we keep pulling out rubies of, of his love and his grace and, and his power and who he is. And so God has placed within us this built-in longing for intimacy with him. And so the thing that I think that we need to ask is the more that I find myself, you know, am I... As I find myself being discontent, what, what is it about? What's really happening? I think what God is wanting us to know is that, hey, he's, he's drawing us in. His spirit in our hearts, drawing us into this deeper intimacy and fellowship with Christ. The second thing that we're longing for because of God's presence, his spirit in our hearts is heaven. So turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, just a couple pages over. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me begin reading in verse 1. He says, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed... Having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, having been burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us, check this out, his spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. For we are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. God wants us to know. He wants it to be etched within our hearts as believers that we are going to heaven. That this world is not our home, but that, that heaven is our home. And what we are really longing for, when we get discontent with this life and the things of this life, the, the, the reason why that's there is because this world is not 
our home. We have this longing for heaven. And that's why it says here that God put the spirit of, put his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And that word guarantee, it, it speaks of a down payment. It was something that someone would do in, a, in that day and age in a business transaction, just like today, that they would make a down payment. Say, look, this is to guarantee that I'm going to buy this car or that I'm going to buy this house. I'm putting a down payment down. And so God, from his perspective, is saying, look, I want you to know how serious I am about your eternal destiny and about, you know, the glory that awaits you with me and about heaven that I've, I've prepared this place for you, that I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit in your hearts as a down payment, as a guarantee. That's what that means, looking at it from God's perspective. But I want to flip it for a minute. I want you to put yourself in the place of the the, the young gal, because this is that word guarantee was also used in that day and age to, to mean engagement ring. And what happens even today when a young man finds a girl that he wants to marry and spend the rest of his life with, what does he do? I mean, he goes out and he, you know, he saves up and he even if he has to, I mean, he sells things, you know, he sells his dog and his skis and maybe not his skis, you know, he sells his, his little brother, you know, he sells, you know, everything that, that he can to save up enough money to buy that ring. And once he has it, you know, he goes, he takes that girl out to a nice dinner and then he gets down on one knee and he, pops the question and opens up the little box and says, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. Do you want to with me? And, you know, she takes out that little thing to see the nugget. You know, no, she doesn't do that. <laughs> but she's like, yes. And that's what God's saying here. My Holy Spirit, it's not just the down payment. It's, it's the engagement ring. And God's like the young man, you know, in that picture. But let's flip it. What happens to that girl? Because that's who we are. We're the bride. What happens to the girl when she puts that ring on her finger and she's walking around? It becomes in her heart a symbol of what's coming. It becomes a symbol of a longing. Especially if, you know, we, our, our church is by Camp Pendleton, and so we have young guys in our church that get deployed, and sometimes, you know, they have a fiance, and so she's here, and he's over in, you know, uh, Afghanistan or, or, or something, and, and, and all of a sudden, you know, she's, looks at that ring every day, and it's a sense of, of what's coming. It's a sense that her love is coming back one day, and they're gonna be joined together. You know, she's out in the park, and she sees a couple that's married, you know, pushing a stroll, and walking around with her little kid and she looks down at her ring and she thinks, that's going to be me one day. We ministered in Oregon for a number of years and like here, it would get cold in the winter. And so a lot of people had electric blankets, you know. So that girl in Oregon, she's engaged. She gets in bed, it's cold at night. She pulls up that electric blanket and she looks at that ring and she thinks, you know, pretty soon I'm not going to need this electric blanket because there's going to be a warm body in this bed with me, you know. And it becomes a symbol of her longing. And that's what God is saying. I've placed my spirit inside of you and he's there. And he's a symbol of the longing that I've created in your heart. A longing for heaven. And God wants us to understand that this world is not our home. That we are pilgrims, that we're just passing through. And he wants us to live like it. You see, the world around us lives for temporal pleasure. 
But God wants us to live with eternity in view. God wants us to be a group of people that has learned to put the eternal over the temporal. To understand that eternity is what matters. To understand that this life in comparison to eternity is like a short walk in the park. He wants us to understand that he has made us stewards here. That everything that we have is from him. And God has made us stewards here that he might reward us there if we're using what he has given us for his glory. You see, our legacy is in eternity. It's the lives that we have impacted. And you know, I believe personally, as I look at the world scene, as I look at the scope of what's happening over in the Middle East and what's happening in our country, what's happening in Europe, I, I'm convinced that we are living in the last days. I really do. I believe Jesus could come back at any moment. I want you to think about that for a minute. That means that, that if that's true, that God has chosen all of us here in this room and all the believers that are in all the churches all over the world, he has chosen all of us to say, you know what, you are the last generation that I want living on the earth, shining for me before my son comes back. I don't know about you, but that excites my heart. That makes me just feel like, oh, Lord, what a privilege. What a privilege. And so God has created within us this longing for intimacy. The Holy Spirit in our hearts crying out, Abba, Father. He's created this built-in longing, a divine longing in our hearts for heaven. To have eternal perspective because he's given us his spirit in our hearts as the engagement ring, as the guarantee. And finally, number three, his spirit in our hearts to create within us a longing to have an eternal purpose. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Ephesians 2, verse 10. We'll be done. You know this verse. It's there that Paul is talking about it's by grace that we've been saved through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then he makes this statement in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're his workmanship. Every single one of us. But here's what's interesting about that statement. When God says that we are his workmanship, what makes us his workmanship is not the fact that our bodies have been fashioned physically by God. It's not the fact that he has created us. Look at the verse again. He says you are his workmanship created in Christ. What makes you God's workmanship? It's redemption. It's redemption. What makes you God's workmanship is the, the fact that, that he has redeemed you. You are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. The key phrase there is in Christ, that you have been placed in Christ. And you became his workmanship through redemption. Through the fact that he redeemed you. 
created in Christ. That's what makes you and I as believers his special creation. You know, a lot of people like to say that, you know, God's the father of us all. Father God. No, no, no. God is the creator of us all. But he's only the father of those who are redeemed. Those who have placed their, their faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you're not a believer, listen, God is your creator. And he will one day be your, your, your judge. But the only thing that makes him and opens the door for him to become your father is redemption. It's you giving your life to Christ. But notice what he says here, what Paul says, that we've been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here's what he wants us to understand. Our fulfillment comes from being engaged in that good work that God has prepared for us. And again, Paul gives us some insight in Philippians chapter 3. Because in talking about his own conversion, he say, makes this statement that, that he was seeking to discover the reason why he has been apprehended by God. And the thing that's interesting about that statement is it was an ongoing revelation for Paul. Each new city that, that God led him to, and each new church that he planted, and each new person that he came into contact with, that he was able to, to share Christ with and lead to Christ, that became for Paul the revelation of, oh, that's why he has apprehended me. And we are his workmanship, and we have been apprehended by him for an eternal purpose. We exist on planet earth to be a part of God's mission. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he tells us you know, that he gave his Holy Spirit, that he would empower the disciples and us for what? That we might be his witnesses. Paul said in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 20, of the church, of all of us, that we are his ambassadors. Let me read it to you. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And I believe the Holy Spirit is seeking to create inside of every single one of us a burden for lost souls. A burden to help people meet Christ. A burden for people around us who are going to hell. A burden for people around us who desperately need to know Jesus. Remember when Jesus was talking to his disciples in Luke chapter 10? And he said to them, he makes this statement, The harvest is truly great, but the labors are few. Therefore pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into the harvest. Now, here's what I want you to think about. Jesus says, hey, guys, the, the harvest is it's, it's ripe. It's ready to be harvested. But we need labor, so pray. Pray for labors. And then what does he do? The next thing it says that he sent them out. In other words, he was saying, you are to be an answer. You are a part of the answer to that prayer. And I believe the Holy Spirit is constantly challenging us as believers in this day and age to be kingdom-centered, to be others-focused, to realize the mission that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And here's what happens. When I begin to have that perspective, when I begin to realize that the discontentment going on in my heart is because 
I have a mission and I have a purpose that goes beyond this job and goes beyond, you know, these hobbies. And it goes beyond even just, you know, raising my family that there's a bigger purpose why I'm here. I start to see everything differently. My neighborhood becomes my mission field. The job that I go to every single day becomes my opportunity to shine. It becomes my opportunity to build relationships for the kingdom of God. It becomes my job, becomes my mission field. The school that I go to every single day isn't just the place that I'm going to learn something or not learn something or I go there like, like if you're me, I went there so I could, you know, sit through class all day so I could play sports. That was my mentality. But something so much greater. It's my mission field. The softball team that I play on becomes a place to build relationships with people for the purpose of getting to know them that I might have the opportunity one day to share Jesus with them. And here's where I want to challenge you. If we would pray each day, if we would get up each day and with this perspective, okay, God, I know why I'm here. I know what your spirit's doing, just calling me, drawing me into intimacy with Jesus. And, and I know my destiny, it's not here. This is not my home, but, but heaven, heaven is calling. I'm a partaker of a heavenly calling. Heaven is calling. And this place that I'm going to today, my work, my job, my school, whatever, it's, it's because I get to be a part of your mission. And so if I wake up each day, we wake up each day and we pray, Lord, help me be open to your spirit to see the world around me with your eyes, to see the world around me with your heart. You pray, I challenge you, you pray that every day. Watch what God does. Watch what the, watch the doors that open up. Watch how you begin to see people differently. Watch how you begin to see opportunities that you maybe never have seen before. And that's when life gets so incredibly exciting. Precious church, ask the Lord to help you be on mission, to see that bigger picture, to see how he's using the things in your life, the good, the bad, the difficulty, to build a greater intimacy and dependency upon him. Notice how he's using the things, to, the struggles to increase your longing for heaven and to see how he's seeking to stir your heart with a burden for people around you that desperately need Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for that work that you are doing in each one of our hearts that you have given us your spirit. That intimacy with you is something that we can actually experience. Help us, Lord, to recognize that longing. And help us, Lord, to remember this world is not our home. Heaven is calling. And we thank you, Lord, so much for the privilege and the blessing that you've given us to be a part of your mission, your kingdom. Open our eyes 
to see the world around us the way that you do. Lord, I thank you for this church. Thank you for Nick and Rosemary. Thank you for the work that you have done here and that you are continuing to do. And I pray, God, that you would be raising up a group of people that are so in love with Jesus, so excited about heaven, and so in tune to their mission and their calling, that they would impact this community in a great way. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thanks for letting me share with you.